Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I want you to find the very first chapter. And this morning I'm going to preach to you from verses 4 down through verse 9. We began a new sermon series last week called Saints Together. Those two words actually appear in the English Standard Version in verse Two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As we began the journey through this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, the church that he planted during the end of his second missionary journey, a church that was in some ways a difficult church that he had to confront not once, not twice, not three times, but history tells us through the testimony of the word, there were four letters written by Paul to the Corinthian church. Two of them were preserved in Scripture and inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that needed to come to us comes to us through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But due to some references in the book, we know they were not the only two letters that he wrote. Paul wrote this church primarily to remind them of something you and I need to be reminded of, something incredibly relevant today. I shared it with you last week. In a world filled with groups, in a world filled with organizations and movements and agendas, it's never been more important for the church to not be ashamed to be the church. And for you and I, though we are identified by many titles, by many categories, by many classifications, if you love the Lord Jesus, you should be proud to be a part of the body of Christ. And the life that you live should reflect not only a commitment to him, but a commitment to be saints together. I'm not reducing it down to church attendance or church giving or church volunteer or servanthood. All those come with it, but this connection that is intimate, as Julie said a few moments ago, with the Lord leads to a connection that should be intimate with other people who, like you in your profession of faith, follow Jesus as Lord. That, that's why we're all here this morning. You'll go in a lot of different directions tomorrow. You may go to an employer. You may be an employer. You, you will go to a various school. You'll study different disciplines. You'll be in a thousand different places in a thousand different directions for a thousand different reasons. But when we gather here on the Lord's Day, week in and week out, barring any snowmacron event, week in and week out, when we gather here on the Lord's Day, we're here because the vast majority of you would say, I'm a lot of things, but today I want it to be known I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his power, and his lordship. And so it's important to understand something about that. Being saints together is not always easy. I have this conversation quite often, and just the other day, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who shared a similar experience. He had a guy come to him and say, look, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life, and I don't think I'm where I need to be with God. Will you help me? Of course, my friend naturally said, of course I will. Would you like to attend church with me? He said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm not going to do the church thing. I'm not ready for that. I've been burned in the past, but I trust you. 
and I'd like for you to help me in my relationship with God. As my friend and I reflected on that conversation, I don't know if you've ever had it, but I've had that conversation many times. People with real wounds from real Christians decide that I want to be right with God and I want to honor him, but I don't need the complication of church relationships in my life. I've been hurt one too many times. What do we do with that when we experience a wound not outside the body of Christ. I expect a world to be inconsistent. I expect people that don't know or love the Lord to at times be kind and caring and at other times to be insensitive and hateful and wicked. I'm not surprised when a lost world acts lost. But it does hurt deeply when someone who professes the same Lord as I do hurts me or hurts someone close to me. It also hurts and cuts when I I'm on the offensive side. I have hurt someone, rather intentionally or unintentionally, who I claim as my sister or my brother in Christ. What do we do? Well, we know the Scripture speaks of the ministry of reconciliation. But where is the foundation for that? It is exactly that that I believe this text has the most profit for you and me this morning. Because I've already mentioned to you, over the next few weeks, we will see in full detail, in high definition that there are a lot of things wrong in Corinth. In fact, commentators often call Corinth carnal Corinth. There is a great deal of sin in the city of Corinth, and that sin has infiltrated the church. Some of the people who profess Christ, who claim to repent of their sin, who claim to turn from a life of wickedness and immorality, have come into the church and brought their bad habits with them. Now, Paul, being an apostle, being a shepherd, being a leader, being an elder, Paul had no choice but to address this. So you can see at times in the text, and we will, that he is frustrated, that he is angry, righteous, in a righteous way, that he is struggling with the immorality and the disobedience in these people's lives. So in my position, if I were to put myself in Paul's shoes, I could see me just fired right out of the gates. He does that to the Galatian believers. In fact, in the first chapter of the book of Galatians, he almost yells at them through the pages of the Scripture, but not in Corinth. In fact, this morning, in one of the most fascinating pictures of God's grace, before he ever deals with criticism, before he ever attempts to confront them over their struggle, before he ever begins to air his own hurt that they are questioning his motives and his apostolic authority, he pauses and he remembers that on our worst day, when I'm looking at a true Christian in front of me, now there are many people who profess to be Christians that aren't. Jesus talked about that. But when I know someone in my life who has an authentic faith in Christ and we are at odds with one another, we have disagreed, we have struggled. One of us has failed the other and in most cases we both have failed one another. Before I ever begin to roll my sleeves up and go to work in confronting that, I need to remember that on my worst day with another Christian, there is a lot in their life I can be thankful for. And it is the foundation of thankfulness that puts me in the best position to speak truth and to be reconciled. No, no sooner has Paul opened the letter with a general greeting that we unpacked last week, 
that he begins expressing thankfulness. Gordon Fee, a, a New Testament commentator, said this about this truth. To delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom one feels compelled to disagree. That's a commentator's way of saying that. Isn't that nice? I feel compelled to disagree with you. You ever argue with your wife that way? I just feel compelled to disagree with you that way. I've never dropped those lines. Normally it's what? That's what I do. What? You, you did what? Well, why in the world? The why in the world oh, usually sets her off. Why in the world? Don't start asking questions of me. You're not in charge here the way you are at church. So, <laughs> to delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom one feels compelled to disagree, is sure evidence on one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercy. Let that, think in, let that sink in and think in for just a moment. When I take time to truly appreciate what another brother or sister has in Christ, I am forced by default to take a look at a mirror spiritually and be reminded of all I have been given in Christ. One of the most unattractive qualities is ungratefulness. To be dissatisfied, to lack thankfulness. Notice what Paul says as I read this passage and preach this sermon called Saints Together. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, verse 8, sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, verse 9, he ends, is faithful. Let me read that again, church, and then I want you to say amen. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Saint, thankful. What are we thankful for in another Christian's life? Paul tells us very clearly. Allow me to outline it with five simple truths. First, we are thankful for a grace that is free. Notice that it begins with, I give thanks to my God always for you because. Here's the reason why. Not because of your performance. Not because you've never disappointed me or I'll never disappoint me. Hang around me long enough. I'll underwhelm you, I promise. I give thanks because of what God has given to you. And he could have chosen any word he wanted, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what did he say? He said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. And, and remember, if we want to nail down grace and really define it, of course, we talk about it being unmerited favor, the love that God gives us that is undeserved. But really and truly, if we're being honest with this text, our grace at its very core is Christological. What I mean by that is grace is a person. Grace is the reception of Christ into your life. To trust 
and believe upon and follow the Lord Jesus is to receive the full measure of the grace of God. All of God's grace is poured into the identity of his son. So when I find myself struggling with another Christian, when I have been the reason that another Christian has struggled, when I find myself at odds, before I do anything, I need to stop and remind myself, that sister, that brother, is a recipient of the free grace of God in their life. Paul understood this. In fact, even in this book, 1 Corinthians, notice how he described the grace of God in his own life when he shared his testimony. In chapter 3, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, Paul never, ever communicates that he earned the love of God. It was given to me. The definition of something being given to you is that it is a gift. If you decide today to go to lunch after the service, the restaurant that you choose might bring you your order. They're not going to give it to you. They will bring it to you, but you walk in and your presence in the restaurant because, by and large, we are a society of order, is a contractual agreement. I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to enjoy what you bring me, and at the end, I'm going to pay you what you have advertised on the menu to charge, and I will tip you for your service. You didn't give me my food, and I'm not going to steal it. I'm going to pay for it. That is not the grace of God. The grace of God is given to us. He says a little bit later in the book of 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, now Paul says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. God didn't waste his grace. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul is communicating that while the grace is free, it produces in us, it should, it did in Paul, this desire to work not to earn it, not proactively, but to work reactively because of the grace that was given to us. And grace is a person. Did you notice when I was reading the passage a few moments ago how many times I said the word Christ? In fact, in the first 10 verses of the book of 1 Corinthians, guess how many times Christ appears? 10 times, directly or indirectly. He keeps coming back to that. It's very hard. For me to resent, be bitter toward, harbor anger and bitterness against someone. If I take a moment and stop and look at them and say, Christ loves them. Christ redeemed them. Christ revealed himself to them. I'm speaking of a Christian. Just as he revealed himself to me. Different circumstances. Different life experiences, perhaps accompanied by different emotions. That person has different strengths and weaknesses. They have things that they do well that I do not do well. They have blind spots in their life that have perhaps caused pain in me. But before I tear them down or even attempt to reconcile, let me pause and remember Christ died for them. You're going to really struggle to resent somebody if you'll get back to the fact that Christ could have resented all of us, and he didn't. He gave himself to us. So be thankful for a grace that is free. Second, be thankful for a gift that they may flourish. 
That person you may struggle with has been given something. Look how the passage unfolds. I give thanks to God for always, you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now watch how he continues to unpack how this grace manifests itself. That in every way you were enriched. Now he's speaking, we know, and I'll tell you why we know in just a moment, of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which brings spiritual gifts. That in every way you were enriched, you were strengthened in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now this is why I think Bible study is important. What we're going to find in the weeks to come, in fact, if you've ever wanted to study spiritual gifts, if you've ever wanted clarity on the gift of tongues, if you want to know what God's view is about law and lawsuits, if you want to understand the relationship of men and women in the church, all these hot button topics, we're going to dive right into them as we go through this book, and we're going to not give my opinion or your opinion, what, what does God say, and we're going to explain it. And one of the misuses in the Corinthian church was the misuse of spiritual gifts. People were flaunting their gifts to draw attention to themselves or using the presence of a gift to look down on someone who might not have received that gift. Now, there is debate among Christians about certain gifts. I'll lay all that out in a few weeks. And there is reason that Christians can agree to disagree on the way in which certain gifts manifest themselves. But no Christian could ever use the Bible to defend hurting or judging or being critical of another person because of their gifts or your gifts. In fact, the very nature of a gift is to bless somebody, right? Well, we don't give gifts to our enemies. We give gifts to people we love. If I give you a gift or if you give me a gift in that moment of handing me something material, you're not saying my life is worth that gift card. You're not saying my life is worth uh, that uh, meal or my life is worth that item that I wanted. You're saying this small token, this material thing that I've purchased you with my money is me saying I love you, I value you, and I want to bless you. So I gift this to you. That's why the New Testament calls the gifts we receive from the Holy Spirit just that, gifts. We don't choose them. We choose to use them, but we don't choose them. The Lord bestows them upon us, and they are a blessing. And the two gifts that the Corinthian church had gotten most wrong were the gift of knowledge and the gift of speech. Yet Paul, in an amazing turn of irony, doesn't dismiss that the gifts exist. He's going to teach them a little bit later that they were misusing them. But before he does that, he says, you know what? Even though right now it's a little fiasco going on and there are divisions in the church and factions, I'm thankful God's given you your gifts. If I come across someone who knows the Lord and I don't see them using their gift or perhaps they're misusing their gift, it shouldn't stop me from being thankful God gave them a gift in the first place. He says, I'm thankful that he's enriched you in this. Now, we'll get to verse 5 in just a moment, but in verse, or excuse me, verse 6, but in verse 7, he comes back. Look what happens in verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, verse 6, I'll explain in just a moment. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. But watch verse 7, he returns back to the gift. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea is Christ gives a Christian everything they need to flourish in their faith. 
Now, I know what some of you may be seeing when I make a statement like that. Pastor, I'm not, I'm, I'm not flourishing today. Well, there's a lot of reasons why Christians struggle. Some of them are out of your control. Because God also calls us to suffer at times. He does not make our lives immune from difficulty. Every Christian I've ever known deals with discouragement. Uh, a lot of times when people are young in their faith, they assume that all the people that smile and look so nice at church must not have the problems that they have. I have never known a mature Christian who's immune from struggles, from feeling alone at times, from feeling isolated, from going through seasons of spiritual darkness. And then sometimes we get ourselves into just ruts and, and, and we're doing the word, but we're not feeling the spirit of God work in our lives. Every person I've ever known who has an authentic, a transparent walk with the Lord admits that there are times when we're up and times when we're down. Now, what we hope is as we grow in our maturity, even when we feel down, even when we face difficulties, we recognize that our emotions cannot be trusted and we faith the Word of God and we do the Word whether or not we feel it. And what happens is in our obedience and consistency to walk, you know, the New Testament uses the word walk all the time, to walk with the Lord day in and day out, one foot in front of the other, breathe in, breathe out, trust God, love him, love his word, love his people, do his work. We do this, what you'll find in the maturity of the faith, those circumstances change, the consistency of our joy increases as we near heaven. All you have to do is talk to a senior adult who loves the Lord Jesus. They can find many, many reasons to get discouraged. But knowing him and loving him grows sweeter and sweeter and sweeter as they progress toward the revealing of the Lord. Which is why, and this is a little bit deeper, why Paul connects this back to going home, being with Christ. The theologian would call it eschatology, the end times. Notice what happens. Look at verse 5. He says, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait. This, this word really means eagerly await. As you look forward to what? Look forward to the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day I hear a podcast or read an article or watch a news headline or read a blog about a supply chain crisis. And every day, depending on who I read, they explain to me what the problem is. Depending on which app you go to, the problem is always Trump or always Biden. <laughs> and they want to pin it on an individual. Some people want to pin it on an economy. Some people want to pin it on global tensions. I mean, there was one point which was the epitome of the global supply chain crisis when that poor cargo ship got wedged sideways in the canal. And we all looked at that for a week going, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't unstuck a boat. And all of you know, I mean, some of you had it together. And I remember watching some of you a-type personality homemakers. Mama's got it on you on the ball. You're like, yeah, I'm ordering my Christmas in August. It may not get here. I want you to know I ordered stuff on like the 22nd of December, and it rolled in. And then, uh, thankfully, one of our kids didn't get something, but he's got a birthday in January. <laughs> oh, here, happy birthday. Oh, I thought this was on my Christmas list. Yeah, well, life's tough sometimes. Here, happy birthday. Sometimes God's blessings are delayed. 
I couldn't help but think about this passage juxtaposed with the supply chain crisis. Let me tell you something. This world's always going to have a crisis. There are always going to be situations where logistics don't work. But my Lord never has a supply chain crisis. He, he's never, ever known a back order. When he saves you and gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit, he gives you all that you need to flourish in your Christian life. He is not stingy. He doesn't hold it back. And Paul is not talking to Christians whose public display of faith would have been admirable. He's talking to Christians who were floundering. And he keeps saying, but I'm thankful that the floundering in your life is not a result of a God who has held back his blessing. It may be a result of your own disobedience. It may be your current struggle, but it is not a result of God being stingy with the presence of the spiritual gifts in your life, which leads to the third truth we can be thankful for. When we look at another Christian, we can be thankful for a gospel that is firm. Aren't you thankful you can build your life on something that no one can question? That there doesn't need to be an investigative congressional committee to see whether or not it's true. Look, look at verse 6. So right in the middle of this discussion about gifts, Paul says, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So I, I think, and I don't know, I certainly can't read into the text, but in his thinking, he's thinking about the enrichment of God into a person's life through the presence of Christ as it manifests itself in the presence of spiritual gifts. That he got stuck on Christ, and he says in verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ. Now, that is the gospel. When you see that phrase, the testimony about Christ, it's not just a testimony. We all have testimonies. You have various testimonies of how God worked in your life, and those are significant. But in the New Testament, when Paul and other apostles make references to the testimony of Christ, they're talking about the story of the gospel. A few moments ago, we sang that. Jeff asked you, let's sing the gospel together. That's literally what he said when we came out of the welcome. It's because that verse really sings about the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the testimony of a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you deny his deity, if you deny his full death for the sins of the world, if you deny his bodily resurrection, you may be a lot of things. You may, may admire Jesus. I'm not saying you can't be a nice neighbor or, or a moral person, but you are not a Christian. The definition of a Christian is that I profess the Christ of the cross who has vacated a tomb and now rules in heaven as testified by the testimony of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, even as the testimony of the gospel of Christ is confirmed in you. Now again, these are Christians who are getting a lot of things wrong, but it did not stop Christ from saving them. It does not stop their faith. So it's real important. There are times when people do things with such consistency. There is a constant pattern of disobedience that we are right, not in judging eternally. I'm so thankful I'm not charged to judge anybody's eternal fate. But we are right to look at the lack of fruit in their life and to be concerned about the validity of their salvation. I mean, Jesus talked about this 
ad nauseum. You'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. The scripture clearly says that one of the defining characteristics of a Christian, while it will not ever experience, he or she will not ever experience perfection on this side of heaven, is this desire to obey. You know, I've always liked to use words that you can remember. I always say a Christian has a forward lean to obey the king. In other words, there's this desire. I don't always obey, but I want to obey. And when I disobey, I know it. I feel that conviction. I'm not okay. And there's no peace until I repent, until I confess. And the scripture's given us that formula about confessing our sins and bringing them before him. And so, no Christian claims perfection, but the testimony of whether or not the gospel lives can be firm if their faith is in Christ. We believe upon that. So if you're struggling with your husband today or your wife or a child in your life that has made a decision to trust Christ and you don't question the validity of their salvation, you may question some of their decisions, their motivations, some of the ways they've been treating you, there may be reason for you to question. They may be failing. If you have a coworker or a friend or someone you thought was a friend, and you know, hey, their faith is solid, but I'm at odds with them. Before I ever try to even address the situation, I need to back up and say, Lord, thank you for saving them. Thank you that I have seen testimony of the gospel in their life and that I have a future hope, of course, which is the fourth truth. I'm thankful when I meet a Christian of the guarantee they have on their future. Look what the scripture says right after this in verse 8. He says at the end of verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will? Now, who is the who there? The who is not the Christian. It's Christ. Let me tell you what Christ is going to do for every Christian in this room, for every one of you watching online. This is what Christ is going to do. This is not based on your performance. This is based on what he is going to do. Who will sustain you to the end, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Who will sustain you to the end, somebody should have amen that. You're going to make it. I need some spirit-filled folk up in here. You're going to make it. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Now, I love this. I love this so much. This means in its original meaning, it, it's not that you're acquitted. A, a, an acquittal is when the charge is there, but you're found not guilty. You're acquitted. That's not what this word means. Now, in certain sense, we could use that, but this word means on that day, they can't even find the charges. They, they, they don't even exist. There's no file. Because when they go look for your filth, your wickedness, your unrighteousness, all the reasons why you ought to be in hell, well, it's under Jesus' name. And at Calvary, he paid it. And then when they pull my file, or they pull your file, all that righteousness and obedience and holiness of Christ, it's under my name. And all of a sudden, I'm guiltless. I'm going to make it. And where am I going to make it? I'm going to make it on judgment day. That's what the scripture says, verse 8. Who will sustain you in the end, guiltless, when? In the day of our Lord Jesus. Sin's having a day right now. Do you agree with that? Craziness is having a day right now. People have lost their mind. We, we are struggling as a nation and as a world with things that three-year-olds understand. 
And it looks as though evil's winning. The Lord's going to have his day. He's going to have his day. And before you and I pick up stones and run to a lost world and condemn them, I'm just thankful on that day they won't find my charges, that I'm guiltless. And when I disagree with another Christian, when they frustrate me to no end, I can at least go, you know what? Because of your faith in Christ, we're going to be in heaven together for a long time. And when that is come to fruition, what we're disagreeing about won't exist. Now, my flesh wants to say, you'll see that I was right. (laughs) I'm sure that's not the case most of the time. But we're going to be there. And that common guarantee is the reason why we face the difficulties today with hope. I have one, my, my father has one sister, Aunt Jo. She's a very simple-minded person. Lived a very simple, incredibly faithful life. She married really late, so she lived with my grandparents for a long time. And when we spent weekends over there, Aunt Jo doted over us. She loved crafts and working with children in the church. She did end up marrying late and several years ago lost her husband. She also developed a number of health issues. And uh, the last few years of her life had been pretty low quality. She maintained a level of independence. She lived by herself in a small apartment. But my mom and dad checked on her daily. And she had to use a walker due to the fact that she had developed Parkinson's disease. She's severely diabetic. She's alone. She's a very simple-minded individual. Graduating high school was, was about what she was able to accomplish. She worked as uh, a retail person in a Walmart for many years and then finished her career as a lunchroom lady and loved the kids and loved her career. Just a very simple, salt-of-the-earth woman who loved Jesus. She didn't call Friday morning, so my parents went to see her, to check on her, and late Friday night they found her unresponsive. My mother's a retired nurse, and so she evaluated her. She was barely breathing, unconscious. The EMTs got there, incredible folks, first responders. If you ever see a first responder, thank them for what they do. And uh, got her to the hospital. She coded several times, ended up intubating her. She was on life support. Late, late, late Friday night, my dad updated my brother and I and just said, we, we don't know. The next few hours will tell us. Well, yesterday morning was the last Saturday of duck season here in South Carolina, so I always get up early, and the boys and I go and try to find a duck in the wrong state, but we go. And uh, so I get up about 4, 4.30, and I get up pretty early most of the days. I'd like to tell you it's my holiness. It's really my bladder. <laughs> but I, I got up in, a, in the moment, the moment I woke up, reached over to the nightstand, and I grabbed my phone, And this was the text I got from my dad. Aunt Joe doesn't have Parkinson's anymore. So I'll go a few days down to Alabama and I'll preach her funeral. And while I'm sad for my grandpa who will have to bury his daughter, and certainly we, we we are remorseful, I have no angst about my Aunt Joe. Like, I, I don't even want her back. 
She could barely speak on the phone, barely read, barely write. Dialing our number on the kid's birthday was a challenge for her. And where she is today, there's no walkers, no Parkinson's, no medications, no diabetes, no insulin pumps. There's none of that. And that's the guarantee that Paul talks about. And why? Well, it's based on the fifth truth. I'm thankful that they have a faithful God. A God who is faithful. In fact, if you read this paragraph, there are two main clauses. Verse 4, I give thanks. And verse 9, God is faithful. Everything else is sort of the sandwich in between the two pieces of bread. I give thanks. God is faithful. He says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the relational aspect. You are not called to believe religious things. You are called into the fellowship of his son because God is faithful. Now, I could take this passage and I could just make a list of things you should be thankful for. I hope I have. But in the true context of the scripture, this is a man who's about to go to battle with Christians. He's about to lay them bare. He is about to not mince words over the level of their disobedience. But before he does, with grace and maturity that I long for in my own life, he pauses and says, let me tell you why I'm thankful. Even though this letter is going to be hard, even though patching up this marriage may be difficult, even though reconciling and forgiving you may be the exact opposite of what my emotions want, I have a God who is faithful. And that language is covenant language. It literally means God is trustworthy because he keeps all his promises. I have not. Beloved, you have not, but my God has kept every promise he ever made. So I can be thankful for that. Three questions for you. Who were you thankful for? You know, Paul could have just plowed right into this letter, but he stopped and he told them, I'm thankful for you. You don't know what it might mean for someone in your life who loves Christ, to have you walk up to them, swallow that lump in your throat, and just say, look, I'm not articulate, I'm not polished, I'm not a public speaker, I'm not eloquent, but I'm thankful for you. Number two, what relationship are you in right now with another Christian and you could use some thankfulness? They could use your thankfulness. You're at odds. There's a wedge. There's some struggle. And you need to take a step back and you need to say, you know what? Remind me, Lord, why I should be thankful for my brother or my sister. And finally, reading this passage made me want to live in such a way so that when my name comes to your mind, when your name comes to his mind and your name comes to her mind, people go, yeah, you know, he's a lot of things. He's a little extra sometimes, but I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for her. I'm thankful for my Aunt Jo. She won't be remembered by hundreds of thousands of people. Her funeral will probably be relatively small. 
She leaves nothing. She lived in a small apartment on a fixed retirement income from the school system. But week in and week out, she'd take that little walker. She'd work her way down to the car of a church member who was her friend who would take her to church. And up until just a few years ago, she would serve in the children's ministry because her mind worked well with crafts. She loved crafts, and the children so adored her. And she shared the gospel with every single one of them. I'm thankful for that. That's the life I want you to live. Ladies, I'd like your help today. We have the freedom to do invitations any way that we feel the Lord leading. I'm praying for a movement of God tonight among men. Later this fall, we're going to do an incredible women's conference. I'm so excited about that. You matter to us and you are important. I don't think you'll be offended in me telling you this. If you win the men, you'll win the families. I see far more women in our church coming by themselves and growing by themselves than I see men who are coming by themselves and growing by themselves. I have a heart for men to follow the Lord passionately. Something's happening about tonight that I sense in my spirit that's bigger than just a well-known coach or good speakers or food or music. I really believe that a movement could be birthed. And so I thought it would be appropriate because you're so gifted at serving us. And since tonight, we hope the altar will be filled with men that this morning, I would invite the ladies of Church at the Mill to pray for the men for tonight. Now, ladies, you can do that any way you feel comfortable. You may sit where you are. But I would love for those of you who feel led, who are wives of men who will be here, who are daughters and mothers of men and young men who will be here Some of you may not be directly connected to a man who will be here tonight, but you have a burden for men. As the Lord leads for you to come to this altar and just kneel and let's pray together as a dismissal. And and as we do, if God has pricked your heart and you'd like to talk to someone, our prayer team will be in the prayer room. They're available. They're willing and ready for you. They would love to have you. And of course, we have folks here, I see some of them, who would be glad to pray with you at the altar if that's what you want. But I'd just like to enter into a time of prayer as we close. And I'd like to invite the women of our church to join me in praying over the men. Would you come now? For those of you who aren't going to come, let those out around you from the left or to the right. And would you bow your head and let's pray together for what's going to happen tonight. And guys, just before you close your eyes, I want you to glance at what's happening. I want you to see the women of this church praying. I want you to feel an indebtedness to them. I want you to feel thankful for them. But I also want you to be ready for God to speak to your heart tonight.